Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. If you're a woman or a minority, you'll know how hard it can be to just get in the room and have a seat at the table. Add in a heavily male-dominated industry like fishing, and it easily goes from hard to almost impossible. Like many of us, today's guest, Nima Tisdale, the founder of sustainable fishing platform Blue Lobster, had to quickly build resilience and see the bigger picture in order to be taken seriously as a female entrepreneur. In today's episode, Nima shares how to find the courage to ask for more, especially when it comes to money, the importance of valuing yourself and your business, and why her novel business idea landed her on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, Firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado... Welcome, Nima. Nima, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work that you're doing in the food sustainability space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. It was so good to connect and I'm really excited to be um, to be part of this whole thing. Amazing. Great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I am one of the co-founders of a company called Blue Lobster. And what we are, we are a digital marketplace for sustainable fishermen. So basically, we connect fishermen directly with end consumers. And right now we're based in Denmark and in other European countries. And our bigger mission is to create an economic incentive for fishermen to use sustainable methods. Fishing is kind of something that's been overlooked in the sustainability agenda for a while. I think it's like, because it's in the ocean, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but we're trying to bring that to people's attention, to the forefront of it, and also use the kind of capitalistic market forces to create a, um, a positive change in that industry. So cool, Nima. Oh my goodness. When I was doing some research into it, I was like, I've never heard of anything like this before. It's it's quite special. Yeah, I think it's overlooked for sure because people are like, fishing is such an old school industry, you know? Absolutely. I can't wait to dive deeper into that. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, so I grew up um, half in Denmark, half in Nepal. So my dad is from Nepal originally. My mom's actually Irish, but she's lived in Denmark for most of her life. So I grew up kind of split. We, we moved back and forth. And I think if you were to contrast the two countries, Nepal is one of the poorest countries in, in South Asia. And um, Denmark has a really strong welfare state. So there are contrasts on every single moment. You know, Denmark is also filled with ocean. And that's where I got to know the fishing culture. And um, and Nepal is landlocked with mountains. And Denmark is flat. So like, you couldn't you couldn't have chosen two places that were more different. But I think as a child being confronted with every few years, the enormous difference there was between living in Nepal and living in Denmark, it instilled in me. I think, a need to make the world a better place. I've always, you know, wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I really believe in business for good, but the for good part kind of had to be there because I think when you grow up between two cultures like that and every three years you watch people kind of, you know, die of hunger, it's it's quite extreme poverty in Nepal. And the other time you come back to Denmark where we have a strong welfare state where, you know, you get sick, you go to the hospital, you get taken care of. I don't think you can really grow up in that kind of a dichotomy without feeling the need to make the world a better place when you grow up yourself. Oh my goodness, Nima, that is so fascinating. And I love the juxtaposition between the two. And as you said, all these learnings that just came for you, you know, at an early age, you know, in your teens and whatnot, was that notion to want to make a change or do something a bit different there? And I guess, well, how did that play out in those early days? You know, were you just kind of creating things or were you more just like observing before you got your hands dirty later on? What was your kind of childhood through the teens like yeah so I think I came to Denmark just in my early teenhood and I think I was I think I was a grumpy teen I was <laughs> <like> so many <laughs> <Where we all? laughs> right exactly I think I tried to get involved with some stuff I started an amnesty international um, organization at our high school to get people into human rights and and that kind of stuff and I think if I look at what I was doing in my young age it was really focusing on helping people far away because with having grown up in Nepal and being in Denmark now, then I was like, okay, I need to help people where they're poorest, you know, like where poverty is really extreme, where there's human rights violations all the time. And I think as I got a bit older, um, my focus became more inward towards Denmark and the issues we actually have in this society as well. So with the fishing industry, the fishermen get paid a really small price because there are so many middlemen in the industry. So all these kind of middlemen, they're taking their profits and they're kind of using the fishermen who are 
kind of suffering in the system. And in Denmark, we've lost 42% of our fishermen since 2006. Like it's an extreme eradication of, of the small scale sustainable fishing part of the industry. When you flip it around, it's kind of like what you hear in the like coffee industry or the chocolate industry where you're like, these supply chains are really long and the small farmers in Nicaragua or, you know, Africa somewhere, they, they were even taken advantage of. And those are the kind of problems that I was used to dealing with. I just didn't think they were happening in Denmark. So when I got confronted with that exact same issue and a part of our population that was being exploited by long supply chains, then I just <laughs> jumped right in. I find that so interesting. And I love the fact that you looked within the country that you were in to see if there are any problems that you could solve in that sustainability space. And I think so often in the Western world, we can just think, oh, you know what, like we've got it good. There's not many issues. I mean, there are some, but they're not as dire as issues in countries like, you know, Nepal and whatnot or Southeast Asia, wherever, Africa, wherever it may be. I find it fascinating that your parents were from two completely different cultures and like two different ways of living. You know, what was the greatest thing that your parents taught you, I guess, growing up and kind of moving you across these two different countries? Yeah. So I think they both worked within charity in, to some extent when I was younger. So I was really raised in the NGO nonprofit space and they both worked within education specifically. So actually my mom and dad met because my dad had started a school in his local village. So my dad had gotten an education in India and then came back to his village and started a school there to help the local kids also get an education. And my mom came down to help him with his project and that's how they met. So my entire childhood was kind of instilled in this charity nonprofit. How do we make the world a better place? How do we help people develop? So I think those values were instilled from a really early age. They're also both quite entrepreneurial and have gone on to create some different projects themselves and some different companies. So I think what they showed me was that if you want to do something, you just start creating, right? So, you know, my dad was, I believe, 20 years old when he built a school in his village. My mom built a whole life for herself in Denmark, but later on just kind of she wanted to have a mini golf course. Now she runs a mini golf course. The idea that if you have an idea, you just start building and something starts manifesting itself. I think that's quite strong to get with you. I love how you say that, you know, to our peers out there listening who feel like they want to get building and, you know, it's been a while <laughs> yeah. and, you know, we've been through everything with this pandemic and whatnot, but for some reason they just can't find the thing or they're just too nervous or scared to start. You know, what would you say to us, those of us who are still haven't yet gotten going, but we want to? Yeah. So I think just get started. And it's so easy to say, but it's just take those first steps. It really fascinates me what keeps people back in that early stage. Because I think one, it feels like a big commitment. Like you sit with the idea in your head and you're like, if I start, I need to go full blown. You know, I need to go full time. I need to work on this all the time. And you make it a really big deal for yourself. But the fact is when we started Blue Lobster, we started working on it a few hours every Wednesday. And then it became the whole day every Wednesday. And then slowly we started developing. And our startup phase took a long time because we were just trying to understand the industry. We were going around talking to fishermen, but it starts really small. And if you're you know, studying or if you're in a full-time job, you can easily do it on the side because the truth is your startup or your idea or your project won't take all of your time from the beginning. So you can just start off talking to people, gauging what do they like, what don't you like, and start talking to people quicker than you feel comfortable because I think there are two things that hold people back from speaking to people about their idea. One seems to be that they're scared they're going to steal it. And the other one is that it just seems daunting and it's like uncomfortable. You're getting out of your comfort zone. 
And to that, I just want to say one, people typically steal each other's ideas a lot less than you think, because just the fact that you're formulating the idea, they feel like, oh my God, that person's already further ahead. Like there's something, there's a mental block there, you know, it doesn't happen that often. And typically if you go out and you share your idea, more people add on to it and it'll develop. And the second thing about it being uncomfortable and daunting, well, it's going to be uncomfortable and daunting no matter when you start. So you might as well start now. You know, if you're starting a business, for example, if you can't talk to people about your idea now, how are you going to sell it when you first get started, whenever that might be, you know, selling your idea is a huge part of building a business. And that's the uncomfortable truth that I think many dreamers have. So if you can't sell the idea then find yourself a partner who can, and then just start talking. Start talking. Such good advice, Nima. I want to understand how business came into play for you and dive a bit deeper into that. So, you know, you've grown up with this kind of dual perspective of two different countries. And, you know, your parents have always been an NGO, they've always been about creating and whatnot. But then you went off to go and study. And I think it was the Copenhagen School of Business. And later you did your master's in international business and politics. That's very down the line, very business focused. You know, there's no social work involved in there. Talk to us a little bit about that decision to to go and study business and kind of what those days at university were like for you. Yeah, so I think, first of all, I chose business from actually kind of a bleak place where I saw how much everyone in the charity and the nonprofit space they worked. And they worked so hard to create some fantastic projects. And just in my childhood, I watched projects from ideation. They were implemented and they created such great impact. And then they were discontinued when the funding disappeared. And watching that throughout my childhood, that was devastating for a child to just experience that not just my parents, but also their colleagues were putting so much love into these projects that were just disappearing because funding stopped. So I actually lost hope at a very young age that nonprofits were the future for impact. I felt that we had to build businesses because then at the same time, I was looking at all these companies and they were sometimes giving donations. And I thought, why didn't they stop making profits just for themselves and then give a little bit to charity? I think the old like CSR things that we know from our childhood why don't they just use their business model and their ability to create profits for good, if that makes sense. And that dream, that's what drew me to business school. Cause I was like, I can fix it from the inside. And, you know, but I also saw this ability to create profit. And that is strong because it means that whatever company or organization you start, that can be self-sustaining. And, you know, we're sorry about sustainability. It really just means that it can sustain itself. And that's also what Blue Lobster is based on. You know, it's the idea that we want to create something that has a sustainable impact on the world, but it's self-sustainable economically as well. So we don't have to go out and find funding from other people. The business model will carry it. Oh, so powerful, Nima. To our peers out there listening who might just think, but, you know, I've just got this creative project and, like, I don't know how it's going to make money. And, like, I mean, I remember back in the day when I started this podcast almost five years ago now, and it was just like, cool, like, I'm so passionate about it. I want to get it going. But, you know, and it took me so long to figure out the business model, to build a business off the back end, to turn it into something that was self-sustaining. You know, for our peers out there listening, like, what advice would you give to us about those initial steps to think about how you can make money? And also, I think a lot of the time, especially for us amazing, you know, women out there and, you know, young millennial women that sometimes 
we feel awkward to ask for money or we just don't think of it as a priority and we just think let's just give, 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 give. What would you say to us? Yeah, so I I have to admit I fall into that category as well as of young women who feel uncomfortable asking for money. And the thing is we just have to get over it because we're undervaluing ourselves. So first of all, your business has to make money. That has to be part of it. And if you're trying to create a project that you want to live off one day, you have to think your own economy into that. You know, you might be building a rocket ship or just a business for yourself. We've gotten external investment from professional investors. And one thing they always ask for is from the very beginning, are you budgeting yourself a proper wage? And that's, I think, something that people, they think, I'll just work for free in my own company. Now, you can't do that because if you're working for free, then the business doesn't hold. The business has to be able to carry a wage. Otherwise, it's not a proper business. And now it's fine if you go in the beginning, you're not going to earn money. That's okay. Like that, that's life. But you need to be aiming for that point where you're paying yourself a salary. And that has to be your aims. Once you find that light where you can be like, this is how much I need to live off. Let me see how I can get there. Then just keep focusing on that and focusing on it. And I spoke to a friend recently who was part of organizing an event and there was many speakers. One of them was female and there's a panel and the other were, were male. And afterwards, when the female speaker came down, they said to her like, you are undervaluing yourself. You were the best one on that panel, but you got paid one third compared to the other panelists because that's all you asked for. And we almost didn't hire you because you asked for so little. Now, so you also have to think about what does it mean when you price stuff? If you price it too low, people actually stop valuing it. And that's a silly thing, but it's the truth, you know? But what might something be worth if you compare two things? If something's significantly cheaper than the other, you might just think, it's because it's a cheaper, like a less quality product. So keep that in mind when you're price setting. Such great advice. Oh, I love this, Nima. I want to dive into the early days of Blue Lobster. So you mentioned that every Wednesday for a couple of hours, you and your co-founder, we just sat down and you just got it done. You know, take us back to March 2018 when it kind of, the idea was percolating and you were just kind of getting going. What were some of those early challenges? that you faced? Yeah. So the early challenges was that we knew nothing about the industry we were entering, but that was a gift. And a, I mean, it felt like a curse, but really it was a gift because if we knew how hard it was, we would never have started. But as I said, we started talking to people. When you come into a new industry where you're an outsider, the best thing you can do is lean on people who know more. Actually, I think that's true no matter what. So we started walking around to all the different harbors, knocking on the fishing boats, going, where do you guys sell your fish? Then we went to all the restaurants and we knocked through in the doors, spoke to the chefs and said, where do you buy your fish? And slowly we started getting all these actors together. So you just kind of need to stay humble and open in the beginning. Keep an open mind because even when you have an idea, it's probably going to change. You know, you can sit there and, and really get it out, live, talk to people. Because when you sit behind your desk and you're just writing something down on a paper and you're like, this is my perfect idea. Your final successful product and or service will look very different from that initial piece of paper that you wrote down. So, so true. So after you knocked down the doors, what happened? You know, did you just kind of start getting a better idea? And I guess what was that time frame like from, okay, we've got this initial idea, we're working on it part-time every Wednesday, to whoa, this could be a real business and, you know, we could do this full-time perhaps. What was that time frame like and what was that transition like? So we started off just putting some really hard deadlines for ourselves, which I would definitely recommend as well. So we said, okay, in half a year, 
if no one thinks it's a good idea, we will stop. So after half a year, people love the idea. Chefs, fishermen, everyone loved the idea. We're like, okay, great. There's something here. And then we said, okay, if we don't have our first paying customer in half a year, we're closing down again. Half a year later, we had many customers. People were loving the product. We just kind of executed on the idea that we had. And then we said, okay, now we have customers in half a year. If we can't live off this, we're closing on the project. And in that sense, we just kept on making these ultimatums for ourselves that we had to live up to. But it gave us an ability to be like, you know, fail fast, kind of. You know, if this isn't going to work out, we'll figure it out quickly. What also happened in that period of time is that I was graduating from Copenhagen Business School and my co-founder, she was already done with her studies. And our business couldn't carry both of us, both of our wages at the same time. So what actually happened is in early 2019, I took a full-time job at the United Nations and my co-founder dedicated all of her time to Blue Lobster. And we split it that way. So I worked full-time. And of course, like I worked at Blue Lobster in lunch breaks and the weekends and the evenings, you know, I'd go straight from my full-time job to the office and then the Blue Lobster office and work from there. But it meant that I had income that meant that my bills were paid and my co-founder Christine's bills were paid. And then she could just focus 100% of our energy. So that's one way of doing it because, you know, there is questions of like, how do you keep yourself financially running for too long? You can't live off your savings forever, you know? Such a great distinction. And I love that you both did that, you know, for our peers out there listening who, Perhaps they've got those savings there, but they're just nervous that they just don't really know if they want to pour everything that they have into it or give every part of their energy. And then on the flip side, those of us who have businesses, but we're way too scared to kind of draw any money and keep it for ourselves to live. You know, what advice would you give to us around navigating through finances when it comes to those early days of business? And was there ever a point where you were just working so hard and so much and you just thought, but there's no financial reward? You know, I remember having so many of those moments. (laughs) How did you keep pushing through? First of all, great questions. Um, For those who have a savings and are waiting to jump out into it, well, first of all, again, as I said, you don't have to jump in full time straight ahead. Figure out what's right for you. Can you can you work in the weekends? Can you work in the evenings? Can you get started? Maybe you talk to your boss and you get one day off a week to work on this passion project. And if it starts getting legs, then jump in. But I would definitely, you know, get an indication that there's some interest there and then just go for it. You don't have to go full throttle from day one. For the people who are out there who are scared of pulling a little bit of income out from your business, I would say consider what your time is worth. Because if you're not paying yourself, you're going to be stressed about money. You know, you're going to be stressed about how do I pay my rent? How do I pay for my food? Can I buy this wine for this dinner? You know, and that is extra stress just in your daily life. So you want to give yourself enough money that you can just pay for your basics. And imagine what does that do for my company? If I have the mental space to be financially secure, how much more energy can I put into my company? And that's the evaluation you have to make, you know, do I believe that I could create this much more value if I just took a bit more for myself? So it's not greedy. I mean, we're talking, I mean, I'm guessing here, we're talking about early stage startups of people who are really not taking peanuts out of their company, maybe nothing at all, because you're just scared of taking anything out. But you have to, because you need to give yourself that freedom to dedicate yourself to the project. If you first are getting traction, I think there's a huge difference between being part-time and full-time in your project because you can put so much energy into it and you can bring it from, you know, early stage traction 
to actual success. So I think that's the dedication you want to give into it. And the question of working so hard and you find there's no financial reward. Absolutely. I have worked so hard and felt <laughs> we're getting absolutely no monetary return. You know, I think, I think many founders have where you're just sitting there going, Oh my God, I haven't slept for weeks and I haven't, and I just can't even see straight. I I have a thing where I'm like, I know I'm stressed because I feel like I can't see past my own nose. That's how I describe it because my thoughts physically can't go beyond what's right in front of me. Um, you have to take care of yourself first of all, because it is stressful running a startup, being in an early stage, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of your mental health because you're going to make better decisions for your company. If you've got a proper overview and oversight. And for me personally, I can say that the money at the end of the day doesn't actually matter that much to me because I think many entrepreneurs feel the same way that there's something else that drives us. And often that creates value and that's fantastic. You know, and that, and that, I think you kind of get rewarded for being that kind of a passionate person, but the money in and of itself doesn't matter. And that's why I'm saying, find out what you need to live off and to make you comfortable. So take that from your company, take that because you need to take care of yourself. And once you're comfortable and you've got your needs covered, I don't think that the additional monetary rewards are that important for most founders. At least in the early stage, of course, there's the hope that one day we'll all become millionaires and that'll be fantastic. <laughs> but until that moment, um, I think it's just about pushing through, really, because you see something bigger. There, isn't that that saying about like entrepreneurs are the only people who will work 80 days, 80 hours a week to not have to work 40 hours for someone mm. else? I believe that so that's true. so mm. true. So true, right? Because you're working for your own dream, so it doesn't feel like work in the same way. Couldn't agree more. Has there been a moment for you, Nima, where things were getting tough? You know, I always talk about the dark side of business and I think it's super important. I mean, you've made it super clear for us that, you know, get your finances sorted, pay yourself. You've got your baseline, you know, needs covered and whatnot. But aside from that, you know, I think sometimes because it is our dream, it feels so heavy when it doesn't go our way, you know, was there ever a point in this journey that you just kind of felt like this isn't going my way at all? And I just don't even know if I should keep doing this or if I can keep doing this. And how did you navigate through that? You know, that keeping yourself mentally okay and whatnot. What was that like for you? Absolutely. I think we've been through COVID. It's been, it's been crazy. We, 70% of our income comes from restaurants. We've been in Ugh. lockdown for years now. Um, so, so absolutely. There's been moments where I thought, will this work out? Can I actually live through this? If I look at the past two years, I've pushed myself to limits where it wasn't healthy in terms of stress. And that's something that I'm really coming to terms with now. And I can see that now that I'm taking care of myself, I'm doing better for the company. And it's exactly like that cliche from the airplanes where they say, you got to put on your own, you know, oxygen mask before you put on your kids. And that's how you have to see it. You have to see your company as your kid. Having said that, I think it's really important to emotionally detach from your company. But if you can somehow emotionally detach one from your company, but two also from the projects that are going on in the company, because obviously there are many moving components, I believe you're going to be more receptive to feedback because you don't take it personally. I'm one of those people who I spit out a million ideas a day 
And half of them, no, 80% of them are terrible ideas. And I can also get really excited. And I can, I can, we talked about this with my co-founder. I can be quite convincing. So I could convince the whole team that a really bad idea is the right idea. But the fact is I need harsh feedback. I need someone to push back. As an idea person, I can only live through that if I don't feel emotionally invested in the ideas that I'm putting out there. Because once I have an idea, I'm like, I think this is a good idea. Let's move forward with this. It's made the rounds in the company and we're pushing forward. If there's no indication of success, if there's nothing showing that that idea was a good idea and we should keep pushing through with it, we need to kill it. And I need to not feel bad about that. And we need to pull the plug quickly because everything that you spend time on that's not a good idea, it's a waste of resources in some sense, either your time or company money, and you just need to to kill your babies. It's really important to keep that distance between you and your work. And also so you can go home at night, to be honest. So you can go home tonight and close the door and you can sleep and that your brain won't be racing as you're lying there in bed going, oh, you forgot to do this, 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 this. No, that's your work that you need to find a way to leave at home. And I haven't mastered it, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Aren't we all? Oh my goodness. I absolutely love it. Look, Nima, we could talk for days. I'm loving this, but I am mindful of your time. I've got a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date? A lot of failures and wins just came to mind, <laughs> especially all the failures just racking up. No, the biggest failure that we had was that we went too far into logistics. And I will contextualize for a second. So we are a tech company. And when we started out, we were disrupting the fishing industry. So no one wanted to work with us. This is an old school industry. And people were like, these little girls are coming in here, messing stuff up. We need to get them out as quickly as possible. And we were like, does anyone want to partner with us? Does anyone want to do stuff with us? And they said, no, you guys will not survive. You'll be done soon. So we had to prove ourselves and we had to earn our stripes. And to do that, we took on everything. We took on packaging. We took on um, trucks. We had drivers. We were doing uh, pickups at harbors. We were doing deliveries at restaurants. We were doing absolutely everything. And we were doing it from scratch. And in some sense, we had to do it because we had no other option but to prove everyone wrong. But we went too far down that road and we lost sight of what our actual ambition was, which was to be a tech platform. So now we're in the middle of a pivot. So we're pulling back all of that operations, all of the logistics. But it means that we ended up far enough down that road that now we've had to say goodbye to the majority of our team because we built a team around operations and logistics. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, why are we doing what we're doing? So, you know, that's something like if you can find a good way of tracking that, it's going to bring so much value. What we should have done is that we should have said, we are now going into logistics until we can find a partner. But we started doing logistics because we couldn't. And then we lost sight of that end goal, you know? So we stopped looking for a partner. And as soon as we looked around, now we've proven ourselves. Now people want to work with us because there's money in it. But we were too slow at making that decision and making that pivot. And we should have done that like eight months ago. So that's, I would say, a big failure that we lost sight of why we were doing what we were doing and therefore didn't change direction quick. I think the biggest success is honestly convincing a bunch of fishermen to use an app. <laughs> like our average fisherman, <laughs> but it's, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been down at a dock trying to convince a 63-year-old fisherman to oh. take his 
phone out Not and really. use an app. No, app. but I mean, we're talking the grumpiest people who are just like, nah, who are you? They're skeptical. They don't want to use their phones. They don't want to use tech. They don't believe in it. And they have a, you know, a cultural mistrust of especially people who went to business school. So we're down there, you know, try like trying to drink some beers with them, trying to convince them to download our app. <laughs> and they, I promise you, every single fisherman we spoke to first said, I am never going to use your app. But now they are. <laughs> so, um, and now we have, you know, fishermen calling us saying, I've got three more friends. I've got four more friends. I've got two friends at this harbor that, that want to work with you. And that is enormously rewarding because it means that we're doing what we're trying to do right. Oh, so, so amazing. Look, Nima, over the last four years in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've had a lot of pushback, a lot of no's, but you've also received, obviously, so many yeses and a lot of recognition for your work. Most recently, you were featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? First of all, take care of your mental health. Find a routine that works for you. Personally, that meant for me, I'd, I've made a time limit to work not past seven. Today's an exception, but um, <laughs> we're not really working. We're not really working. We're just, we're just chatting. Just um, chatting. Yeah. But find those routines that work for you where you don't burn out because you can work at incredibly high speed for a while, but not forever. And four years in, I can tell you that there's a limit. So find your flow. Number two is to trust your instincts. You've heard it a million times. You'll hear it here again because it's true. Um, there is a fine art between listening to feedback and listening to customer input and then listening to your instincts. And you have to find that balance. What I mean here is sometimes people will tell you something and there will be a layer beneath that. I will say, here, use this app. And they will say, "I no, I don't want to do that. I'll never use an app. But you've got to dig deeper and find out what is it that they're resisting because it's not necessarily the app. It could be, but there is very often a layer beneath what people's initial response is. So dig deep and figure out what that is. And often your instincts can lead you to the general direction because if you're not all running towards your vision, you're just running all over the place. <laughs> and number three, surround yourself with people that are smarter than yourself. You are not going to be the expert in everything as lovely as that would be. There are people out there who know more than you in almost every field, probably, unless you're an expert genius in something specific. But I think many founders, at least, are generalists. So surround yourself with the people. Don't, don't try to learn it all. You're not going to become an expert in everything. Get advice. Get help. And you'll be surprised at how many people are willing to give that help. Oh, such valuable advice. Oh, Nima, what a chat. I'm about to ask you the final question, but before I do... I'd love to take a moment to acknowledge you, Nima, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, for showing us that even if we may think we're crazy or others may think we're crazy, we can go out there, we can make a dent, we can do business for good, and ultimately we can quote-unquote change the world in some little way. And for that, because of your story and your truth, we really appreciate you. Thanks. <laughs> appreciate that. That's very sweet. <laughs> of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most 
passionate about? Happiness. I think, I think that's it. You only live once, <laughs> right? You only live once. And you got, if you have something that you can feel it, you can feel it in your belly. You're passionate. You want to do it, then do it. What are you waiting for? Life. And some people say, okay, well, maybe I waited too long. Now, now I'm in something and I can't leave. No, every day you wait to start going for what you're passionate about is a day that you're delaying that journey, right? It's never too late to get started. And if you're a young person and you think oh, I'm too young to do it, no, you're not. <laughs> People have done crazy things at really young ages. I think Joan of Arc was a teenager. <laughs> Just go, go, go do something crazy. You're not too, you're not too young, but and you're not too old either. I honestly, how couldn't you? If you feel passionate about something, then, then how couldn't you go for it? That's my real question is that, you know, how could you let anything stand in the way? of something that you can feel in your gut is the right thing to do and that would make you happy. Go for it. Do it. Nima, Nima, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my goodness. You're so awesome. It's been so, so cool to chat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really great. Absolutely. So where can we learn more about you and Blue Lobster? You can find more information about us on bluelobster.app or on our Instagram, which is bluelobster.app as well. That was easy. <laughs> or my name is Nima Tisdall. You can find me on Instagram, on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. We might not be everywhere yet, but we hope to be soon. So if you know somewhere where the local fishermen need some help with getting out to local buyers, then let us know. We're expanding quickly. Love it. Amazing, Nima. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.